Hey everyone, I'm Ed Clancy. Thanks for tuning in to the Quick Link podcast. Hopefully we've got an interesting episode for you, talking all about team pursuit, coaching and the future. Welcome to Quick Link podcast. Today I'm joined by a multiple Olympic champion, multiple world champion, multiple European champion, um, I said that without because I looked up his Palmaris earlier today and I've already forgotten, so apologies for that. <laughs> and Commonwealth Civil Medalist as well. It's Ed Clancy. How are you? Cheers, Pete. Thanks for that kind introduction. I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, I've had a nice steady day in the sun, uh, just playing on my gravel bike. I've got a new trials bike in the garage, which I mentioned earlier. So, um, yeah, happy, mate. All good. Yeah, um, I guess, like, obviously you, you've got a storied career and as a, a, a very medal-laden Palmares. I guess really what's intrigued me is like how did you even find cycling because the way I see it your generation was kind of that golden generation that got everyone excited about cycling but for that where did the genesis come from because without you there wouldn't be many following in your footsteps but where did you like get the interest for cycling from? Yeah, yeah. You know what? It, it seems more mad looking back now than ever. And, um, you know, I guess when you're in it, you don't really think about such things. But I, I think, honestly, Pete, I think a lot of it's just down to one, like, massive happy coincidence. And um, how did it happen in terms of its mechanics? I was just a stupid kid that enjoyed riding bikes, uh, very much like I am now, to be honest. But um, there was... Uh, it started with BMXs, mountain bikes, you know, just hand-me-down bikes off a of big brother. You know, uh, nothing more complicated than that. I wasn't racing. I wasn't training. Um, you know, when I was in single digits in terms of my age. And it never really progressed from that until I was um, probably like, you know, getting towards like my sort of mid-late teens. And then there's a few things that sort of coincided. There was a design tech teacher that was um, – I would have a bit of banter, you know, and I'd call him a roadie and he'd take the mick out of my mountain bike mates and stuff. And anyway, it was a combination of that. And my stepdad, Kevin, uh, decided to um, decided to get a road bike for a birthday present. Did a few club 10-mile time trials and things like that with the Home Valley Wheelers, the local club. And um, so that was my sort of route into competitive cycling. And then I guess shortly after that, Pete, I got involved with British cycling and this must have been back in pretty much like the year 1999 or the year 2000, which is, um, I suspect a lot of listeners won't have even been born then, but um, <laughs> that's, that's when I started getting involved in British cycling and um, they didn't have a go ride program back then. It was called the talent team mm. and it literally went around schools identifying, you know, what they hoped was going to be talent. And, you know, little did I know at the time, but I think, you know, a big part of that project was trying to find athletes um, like myself. Uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Armstead came through the talent team. Uh, Laura Kenny, loads of top cyclists um, came through the talent team. And um, I, I guess I was one of them. And it, it, British Cycling sort of scooped me up. They give me a few hundred quid a year, uh, lottery funding on the talent team, to, you know, to get forward to get to a few races and things like that. There's a guy called Johnny Clay that some of the listeners might know of, an ex-pursuit rider, and he, he helped me out massively in the early days. 
And um, yeah, you know, once I was on that British Lightning conveyor belt, I popped up at a, a convenient time. We were well funded. And then uh, I, I wanted it to be fair. And I worked hard. I wasn't massively rebellious for a, you know, a teenage sports person. You know, I was doing what I was told. I was working hard. I was, I guess, taking all the right boxes, um, at least some of the time. And uh, yeah, then of course came the academy years, and we moved into Manchester with Mark Cavendish, Geraint Thomas, and um, yeah, I guess the rest is history. Yeah, and looking back all that way, like, sorry, I said all that way as if it was, you know, <laughs> eons ago. But It like, was, yeah. But, like, when you're in the talent team and, and first getting selected, like, what did success look like for you? And do you think, ultimately, your career was successful? Yeah, you know, success is an interesting word. And um, I... <sighs> You know, if you'd have asked me when I was seven years old, like, you know, what's success? What do you want out of cycling? You know, it had just been fun, you know. That was what success was. And, um, you know, we, we literally started off this call by saying, like, today I was out on my gravel bike and I'm playing with a new trials bike in my garage. And it's kind of gone full circle, you know. Success these days in terms of two wheels is, is fun. You know, having a laugh, meeting up with the mates on the mountain bikes or whatever it is. Um and, you know, that's how it started. And it's an interesting question because I guess as soon as I was on the, the talent team, the junior program, the under-23 program, and, you know, the next 15 years that followed that at the sharp end of British Cycling and Team Pursuit, you know, success was um, it was a medal, you know, a colour of medal or a time or a, a power on your you know, uh, your Garmin, your heart rate monitor, whatever it is. And, um, yeah, it's interesting how quickly that changed, but I was more than happy to embrace it, more than happy to embrace it. And, um, you know, I was a competitive young thing. And, yeah, there was um, there was an interesting turning point, I think, you know, probably uh, in 2004, and we, were, we, I remember there was a bit of a pivotal moment, to be honest. Like, we were all sat around the TV in Belgium. So it was myself, Geraint Thomas, um, Mark Cavendish, Matt Bramayer, Bruce Edgar, Tom White, the, the whole academy. I remember we were crowded around this tiny little TV in a house in Belgium doing a commess, um, you know, under the watchful eye of Rod Ellingworth, who was our coach back then. And um, it just so happened that Chris Oy was on the TV, you know, at the Olympics in 2004. And, uh, yeah, he was lining up for his kilo. And, you know, we all kind of watched that. And we were all, at that point, you know, doing the track sessions with him, training track centre and so on. And I think there was a little light bulb moment that kind of went off in our heads. And we were like, you know what? We might not be riding a kilo in four years' time, but we could be sat there where he is, you know, lining up for an Olympic medal. And we knew the Great Britain cycling team was on a good path at that point in time. And, uh, Dave Brailsford, Sir Dave Brailsford now, you know, was, was heading things up nicely and, you know, everything was moving the right the right way. And, um, yeah, like I said, you know, I, I do look back at my career and think, you know, a lot of things, you know, I definitely turned up at a, a, a good time. 
I'm sure I tried to make the most of it. But um, yeah, and, and after that point, you know, I think we kind of like really believed that we could make that success a reality. And um, yeah, off we went. Off we went. Wow. Yeah. I know there's a point I wanted to come back to actually from from a second ago where you said about how it changed from being about having fun and then just hitting numbers. Yeah. And I know like I've read Cav's first autobiography thousands of times because <laughs> like growing up, he was and still is my favorite writer. Um, and he said like, he's not, a, he's not good at tests. He's good at racing because that's mm. how he is. Yeah. And it strikes me that the track environment, certainly of the time, was very much about numbers and power and you know yeah. is the measurable events um i feel that potentially there's been a move away from that recently but certainly back in so when when you were at the height of the success it was all about the, the events that you were timed because you could measure them you could set specific mm. power to it and, and numbers so it was that testing something that you were good at rather than the kind of racing style yeah i think um your observations are absolutely accurate there you know uh, 2004 to 2016 let's say you know the the whole british cycling was very uh numbers orient you know numbers focused let's say yeah and um that that, that got become, become less so i think in terms of talent identification things like that you know more recently but you know certainly in the earlier days um everything you're right you know the talent identification um what medals we target in the olympics and so on it was it was very much about the numbers and um it, it was quite a statistical program and um, it was very methodical and you know that played beautifully into the sort of like the whole marginal gains program you know look at the bike on the wall behind me and all that you know we were <laughs> well ahead of the race you know in terms of um engineering let's say and um and you know i'm not just talking about aerodynamics and skin suits and things like that but in terms of like um you know we were the first team that looked outside of doing like single lap turns in the team pursuit it, it's comedy now but you know back in the day it was really quite standard for people to do half lap turns lap turns and um you know we kind of threw all that rule book out the window and um yeah, the point being that numbers sort of spreadsheet approach suited me down to the ground. You know, Cavs very much. Um, there's different types of people, isn't there? You know, and there's uh, there's people that sort of like get a buzz out of spreadsheets and numbers. There's there's people, people, and then there's task focused people. And you know, I'm a massive Cav fan like yourself, Pete, and. Um, he was always been very task focused. He's like the Jeremy Clarkson of cycling, isn't he? You know, he just goes straight to like, <laughs> that's where we want to go. Yeah. And he sort of like snow plows people and uh, statistics out of his way to get the job done. And, uh, you know, in a spectacular fashion, to be fair. And, you know, for me, I, I was very thoughtful. I, I kind of loved the powers. I loved the numbers. I loved aerodynamics. Um, I loved the spreadsheet. And I, I guess that's a big part of the reason. Uh, along with my sort of physiology that kind of gravitated towards, um, you know, the timed events. Hmm. 
there's so many tangents I want to explore here. Um, it's going to make it tricky to, to knit this all together. But uh, I'll start with where my mind went first. When you talked about innovating team for shooting and, and mm. sort of taking that script and going, actually, there's a different way we can do this. Um, yeah. Listeners won't be aware of this, but in the background, I've got the Dan Bigham book, Start at the mm. End, and he was part of a, the Hoob team who, yeah. again, they innovated things in team for shooting where yeah. I can't actually remember the rider and apologies to them, but they'd have someone who just did a kilo essentially. And that, that would be their them done because yeah. it, that suited their physiology. Uh, yeah. And they, he actually realized if he tried to go to the back, it wouldn't benefit the team. It wouldn't benefit that rider. So it's pointless doing it. Yeah. Did you watch them and go, Hey, should we try and do something of them or did you just focus on on yourselves at that point no i think the the riders in particular we were we always had um eyes particularly you know when we weren't winning hmm. you know we always had eyes on um not even when we were winning you know you you've, i think there's a lot to be said for sort of focusing on yourself and doing doing your job but I think you, there's no harm in sort of like taking inspiration uh, from from elsewhere, and yeah, I, I think I've said this before. You know, who what bike did a great job on on many fronts, you know, and they proved what was possible, you know, with a small team and a small budget. If you know you've got a willingness to learn and try new things, and you know, I think that's that in a nutshell. That willingness to learn is pretty much what made us the team we were you know, in 2008 and on the approach to 2012, let's say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think uh, Dan, Johnny Whale, um, those lads, they they turned up with uh, fresh eyes, um, a different backgrounds, you know, engineering backgrounds, uh, scientific backgrounds. And again, they didn't just take a, a fresh approach to the, the turn structure, if you like, and looking at people's individual physiologies. They looked at aerodynamics. You know, they really kind of threw the, the rule book out the window in terms of that, in terms of um, start starting order and lineup. You know, there was sort of traditions that we have in like, you know, the, the fast twitches start, you know, in pole position, if you like, and then you have the slow twitch at the end and they kind of questioned everything. And, um, you know, they, um, with the, the amount of resources they had, they did a great job, you know, yeah. and um, they, they really moved the game on. And even today, you know, you see how well Dan's doing and um, I think he's still got that same sort of attitudes, you know, willing to try new things and sort of explore new opportunities. Um, in terms of training as well, I've had some great chats with Dan, um, you know, in terms of biomechanics and things like that. And it's the honest stuff that we haven't really considered. So, um yeah, and I think you could probably do a whole podcast on dealing with success, you know, and it's not easy. And um, I don't mean that in a sort of spiritual sense. I mean it in like a mechanical sense. Yeah. You know, this is not this is not something that's um, it's not just British cycling. It's not just it doesn't just happen in Olympic sports. You know, you see it in Formula One, you see it in football. How many times do you see a premiership team, um, 
you know, win the championship and then do it every year for the next 12, 15 years, you know, it's very rare. Same in Formula One. You know, we've seen Mercedes have a good go at it for the last seven, eight, nine years now. And, you know, once you have um, a team and, you know, that's really working, that team grows. It gets better finances. There's sponsors that come in and out. There's um, multiple layers to making relatively simple decisions. Um, you know, what, to have, like, instant clarity on uh, your goals and challenges is, is more difficult. All the intellectual property you've got um, in terms of engineering, strategies, um, training, nutrition, all of that gets dispersed around the world. And that's, that's not an easy thing to control, you know? That's not an easy thing to control. So um, I've got to say, f for that reason, I still think the Great Britain cycling team is doing incredibly well. But... Um, to get them back to my point, what who what bike did was they had a very small team, and you know it it could make decisions like a a, a London taxi. It could just swing a U turn in and go for it, and um, they yeah, made sort of quick decisions, and yeah, it worked well for them. Yeah, because when you first said like it's difficult to essentially repeat success, I thought it was going to be going into the sort of sphere of you know how do you well how do you climb higher when you've reached the summit like it, yeah. it, it can be so easy to go well i've achieved what, yeah. what more do you need uh, and kind of relax almost and, and rest on your laurels but mm. it's also yeah. yeah that that i guess hierarchy and almost the politicization of sport when it gets so successful it yeah it becomes difficult as you said to you're not yeah. agile anymore you're this massive behemoth that yeah, yeah. needs sign off everywhere. Yeah. Um, okay, so going back to the other points you made um, that I wanted to tangent off into, you said that like you're a very numbers guy and that your physiology kind of suited track and the timed events. Was there ever a point where you kind of made a decision that, you know, because you're in the same class as Brad Wiggins, Geraint Thomas, Mark Cavendish, that kind of generation and they've had huge success on the road mm. and did you ever go like i want to do more road or did you just decide i want to be track focused and that any success on the road because like actually the the first tour series race i've ever watched was you winning in peterborough back in 2000 and I want to say something like 2007-8-ish. <laughs> uh, yeah, it could have been, yeah. Um, I, I did like that Peterborough circuit. I'll give it that. But um, yeah. <laughs> it was a great, i tell you what, there was less and less flat tour series circuits um, as the years went on. But I loved Peterborough. It was pan flat. Yep. There was loads of sort of like fast sweeping corners. There was one sort of like semi-technical cobbled right-hander after start-finish. Perfect. That's... Um, textbook crick circuit for any event organizers listening um but yeah, yeah sorry to answer your question mate every day i kind of looked at those boys and i was like damn i wish i could be in the tour de france or you know where's my swanky tour bus and you know big contracts and so on but hey truth is pete i just wasn't that good on the road and um you know when i was in my sort of youth in my young 20s i was out on the continent with a pro continental team called lambo credit in belgium and 
I was there with Paul Manning, who was a very senior rider. And um, the year before that, even, I was in a smaller team called Team Sparkast with Cav. And, you know, we were doing the races. We had I had exactly the same opportunities as, as Geraint and Cav. Um, I, I just didn't, you know, even from that young age, it was quite apparent that I, I, I was all right for about 20 kilometers, you know, okay. and I could get around these big races. And, um, you know, I've been around Tour of Britain and um, Tour of Langkawi and things like that. And um, I, I've even done all right in a few of them. But, um, yeah, I always had a great turn of speed, you know, on the track and team pursuit and all that just came so, I won't say so easy because easy is not the right word. But it, it came easier, and um, you know, to a lesser extent, the bunch racing on the track and the omnium and things like that that came along later. But um, yeah, I, the, the road. I dare say, you know, if I kind of sacrifice GB and you know all my commitments there on the track and all that, I probably lost five or six kilos, and you know, moved out to Girona and led the roadie lifestyle. I honestly think I'd have probably been good enough to carry the 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 bottles for the team leader in some of the support races. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have even been a tour rider. You know, there's no way I'd be a domestique in the Grand Tours or anything like that. I might have been able to scrape little contracts and World Tour teams and things like that, and you know, might get the odd like top ten in pro logs here and there, and become a little bit of a lead out man, but. The standard's really high, you know, World Tour cycling. And um, for me to have been good enough, it had taken everything and, you know, sacrificing the track. And, yeah, <laughs> even then, I'm not sure I'd have been good enough for that. Yeah. But you know, the plus side is, like you mentioned, you know, that off the back of 2012 in particular, and it's a bit sad to see it's not quite the same now, but, like, the UK cycling scene absolutely boomed. You know, there was four or five teams, um, you know, that were rocking around the National Crit Series, the the Premier Calendars, the Tour of Britain, Tour Series, but, you know, all with million-pound contracts. It was JLT, Rally, NFTO, uh, One Pro, and, you know, all the riders were getting paid. Uh, we had a great time. We did plenty of racing around Europe and around the rest of the world. And I guess more importantly for me, I absolutely loved the crit racing. Loved it. I loved all those you know televised crits. And um, on top of that, it still meant I had a bit of time to do the track racing as well. So it was kind of like a win-win scenario that kind of like fell into my lap, which was great. Yeah, I was going to talk about the Omnium um, because you did mention it earlier anyway. Um, and again, it kind of ties back into your, like how... British cycling worked at the time where you were amazing at the timed events. Um, I think I was looking it up for London. I think you got first, second and first in the three timed events that you could do. Um, you know, which for the Omnium, it's all about consistency and racking up. I think at that time it was about getting the lowest combined points, I think. It all yeah. gets a bit messy, but... That's right. <laughs> um where basically yeah. every position is a point, so under lowest points wins. Um, yeah. But obviously, if you you had the flying lap, you had the IP um, 4K pursuit, you had the, mm. the kilo time trial, which were 
huge I want to say huge point scorers, but you know what I mean? Like there are yeah. huge good events yeah. for you where you didn't score many points because they were so good. And then how did it feel to go from team pursuiting and having those timed events that you can rely on into the bunch events, which was at that point was the points, the elimination and the scratch race. And, you know, they're, they're hugely unpredictable. How did that yeah. sit with you? sort of having to, to learn them. Yeah, I mean, speaking about, you know, my, you know, good turn of speed, it was great for the short distance events. You know, even those like bunch races were sort of like outside my comfort zone in terms of um, an endurance event. Um, the Omnium actually changed, you know, during that Olympic cycle. And when I first rode it in 2010, there was a flying lap, a 3K pursuit and a kilo. And there was only two other bunch events. So mm. there was, was five races. It was all on the same day. And the bunch events were like, I don't know, it was like a five, 5K scratch and like a 10K points or something. It was like a track league. It was absolutely perfect. And I remember I got the call from Shane Sutton to say I'd been selected for the Omnium. I'd done no preparation, like nothing. I didn't even, <laughs> didn't even have a bunch bike. And um, yeah, long story short, we pulled my bunch bike out of the worlds and we won it first time out. We beat Taylor Finney and then went down to the last race and beat Taylor Finney, I think, and the and was it Lee Howard as well? The Aussie lad that was world champion at the time. And yeah, that was it. We pretty much got my name on the start line for 2012 at that point. And you know, even after that sort of world championship win in 2010, the event changed and the bunch races became longer and more difficult. They added the elimination race in, which in my opinion still um, yeah, I, you know what I mean. I'm not a fan of that event, but um, yeah, it, it was it was an interesting dynamic going from the sort of predictability of um, the timed events, and I just suffered around the bunch races. I hate's a strong word, but I didn't hate the bunch events. Uh, I didn't hate the Omnium. In fact. I enjoyed it, but there were, you know, even when you got it right, the the feeling of winning, you know, didn't even compare to like getting it right with the team pursuit with the boys. You know, I've always enjoyed the team dynamic of um, the team pursuit and, you know, compared to like the pre-race nerves and things like that. Yeah. Nothing, nothing came close to the team pursuit. It was, um, it was something else. Yeah, because I was going to say also, while you were talking about it, I realised as an Omnium rider, other riders are going to see that you can nail the timed events because, you know, as you said, like you can, you personally can rely on them and they're predictable. So other riders are going to look at them and go, well, he's going to win that or, you know, he's going to place well here. So when you get to a bunch of events, like the scratch where people could gain a lap and that can sometimes happen by just lack of effort from anyone else (laughs) and that kind of it it throws the onus on riders like yourself to chase it and yeah yeah Yeah, that's true yeah i mean um i mean that's the same you know in 2012 i think roger kluger was there viviani was there hansen there was a lot of big players um I forget his name. The young French lad that's gone on the road now that does uh, Cockard. 
There's mm. there's a lot of play, big players in 2012, um, you know, on the aerobic sort of bunch racing front. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't think those boys ever ganged up on me because they were they were fighting amongst themselves as well. Yeah. And depends how you sort of like frame the situation, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, you can sort of like look at it and be like, okay, I'm in for a kick in here and people are going to look <laughs> to me to chase things down. Um, but also... I mean, I, I always played the card that I'm not as strong as these guys, so I'm going to let them go first and I'm going to try and follow them around as much as I can. And um, I'd love to say that tactic worked brilliantly, but I just never had the legs. And um, I think that bronze medal I got in 2012 was a, a fair result, you know. I don't, think I, was, I don't think I was the best Omnium rider in the world at that point in time with, with the new rules as they were. But um, I think I was one of the best. And I, I, yeah, I was happy with that bronze medal. Yeah, I was going to say, what's your view of today's Omnium, which is, is it four events now? It's like all in a day. And it's, I want to say, scratch, elimination, tempo and points. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, scratch, eliminate. I mean, honestly, my, I, I don't. I love track cycling. I love cycling. Uh, I love all disciplines of cycling. Um, all of them, honestly. Like the, um, I'm not so clued up on like the BMX freestyle, but like you know the BMX Supercross, amazing. The mountain bike, you know, watching Pidcock win there, amazing. Like I love two wheels, but um, you know, and I, I love the Omnium in its current format. Could it be better? Could we have better track races? Honestly, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I just think like the um, the athletes as well. There's there's not really any like middle distance events anymore, and unless you've been following the team pursuit really closely, Pete, you know that that event's changed as well. And yeah. um, you know because of because of the way aerodynamics have like taken off, the actual uh, the type of rider it requires these days, it's almost like back to the future. It's if you get four good individual pursuiters up there, you know, you can have the best team in the world. The sort of days for um, the sort of sprint endurance hybrids like myself or Stephen Burke, um, they're kind of gone. You know, we, we, we're doing um, it's a very linear effort these days, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's um. It's a very linear linear effort, and it's quite an aerobic effort as well. And you know, if you look at the the latest version of the Omnium, again, there's not really any sort of sprint events in there. I, I wouldn't consider it an all rounder event anymore. It's essentially a points race, you know, with some uh, some some races before it. Um, you know, which is fine, and it's good that those events are in there. Do I miss watching? the best kilo riders in the world all line up for a massive showdown over, you know, 58 seconds. Yeah, of course I do. You know, that. how can you top that for an Olympic event? And, um, yeah, I think, uh, personally, I think it's a shame that's not there. And, you know, the individual pursuit, not that it was ever really my cup of tea, but I always kind of grew up, you know, watching Boardman and um, I just about remember O'Brien as well. And, you know, sort of more recently than that, I remember like Rob Hales and giving it a good go, Brad Wiggins. And I always thought it was a bit of a shame that that wasn't around. 
Um, but maybe that's just a sign of my age. You know, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm getting old and grumpy. But um, I, I kind of feel bad for like the Kian Amadis of the world. Yeah. You know, you could be the best two-kilometer rider in the world, but there's no there's no race for him anymore. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, I get that. There's no race for, you know if you're a, a swimmer. The chances are you'd be there'd be um, a distance, but um, I but I get it though. There's a lot of cycling events in the Olympics, so they've got to you know pick and choose. Um, and I'm sure it's much more complicated than what I think. So. Uh, We'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, and time is trying to beat us, but I, I want to get this last question in. Yeah. Basically, and I'll try and keep it short. Like, at what point did you go? Ah, it's enough, enough racing for me. I'm gonna stop racing. And obviously, now you're into to coaching. Like, I guess it's a, a two part question. Like, what made that decision, and how have you found that transition? Well, in 2015, I had a back operation and, um, you know, a lot of people have bad backs and I had a bad back as well. And it was a really tough period of time, to be honest. You know, there was, uh, you know, when, you, when you've been a double Olympic champion at that point in time and, you know, things are going pretty swimmingly and, you know, the next day you're literally like crawling around the house and, you know, you have your operation and all of a sudden, you know, like the your job's different, your, your way of life's different. And, um, you know, we got back on it and we managed to get a gold medal out of Rio. You know, f- for that reason, it was, um, you know, I always consider that my greatest achievement. But the problems never really stopped there. And, you know, we cracked on for the next five years after the, um, the wonders of coronavirus pushed the Olympics back a year. And uh, I'm glad I went for it, but, you know, ultimately... I, I just um, it. I honestly don't think I was ever the same after that back operation. And like you know, whilst we got up to a great standard and we were world champion, and I won my first ever pro road race and things like that. Uh, I I do feel like I just never quite got back to um, the heights that I was able to achieve prior to that, and um, yeah. To be honest, you know, by the time we got to Tokyo. You know, things weren't so much getting better. Uh, you know, we came out of an unsuccessful Olympics and I didn't want to drag on the inevitable, you know. Transition? Yeah, I mean, it's not just coaching I'm doing now with under-23 lads. I work for this performance consultancy business. I've always loved sort of like high-performing teams and individuals and, you know, what makes them tick. Um, so I'm heavily involved with that. I'm an ambassador for CAMS now. And, um, yeah, like you said, on top of that, I work with the research and innovation team with British Cycling and the commercial team there as well. So I've got about five or six different part-time jobs. So uh, I'm um, I'm trying my best to spin plates in retirement. But, yeah, like I prior mentioned, I'm just trying to enjoy life as well and yeah. remember why it all started in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's all about having fun. And as you said, we've come full circle, which is, you know, yeah, it's a yeah. joy to see. You mentioned that like you're fascinated by kind of high performing teams and how they they function, and that's part of of what you do for Pro Noctis. Like, yeah. what is that attraction for you? I don't know. I think, if, to be honest, a lot of it's probably familiarity. 
you know, when you've been used to working, you know, in high pressure environments and, you know, like I tried to explain earlier, the, the team pursuit, it was such an intense thing. And, to, you know, I haven't found anything in retirement that can get anywhere near sort of replicating that feeling of sitting on the start line, you know, and trying to put four years work into four minutes. And, you know, everyone in that building ain't there because they're getting paid well or, you know, they're on some sort of like corporate ladder chase. They're there because they're passionate about sport and they want to be there. And, you know, there's been some particularly influential people in my life, you know, not just sport uh, that have come from uh, that building in Manchester, you know, Dave Brailsford, uh, Shane, Matt Parker, one of my early coaches, Steve Peters, uh, you know, and everything he sort of like made me think about in terms of mindset and sort of questioning the world and how things um, are perceived to be. And I guess I've still got that, I don't know, it just still feels like it's part of me, you know, and to me it doesn't really matter if that application sort of team pursue or, uh, you know, you're looking after the pro Noctis team, you're trying to apply what you've learned as an athlete into a sort of coaching role. I just love the world of high performance and um, I'm sort of picking things up in different you know, applications of that as well with, um, you know, help from people in the building there. But um, I, I guess it's just in my blood at this point in time. And, you know, since I was 16 years old, I haven't really known anything else. And I don't have that much interest in um, average, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Like always striving for, for better. Um, yeah, you know, I'm a bit of an all or nothing character like that, and it kind of applies to mechanical things as well. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I, I love the technology, I, I love the bikes, and you know, it doesn't just apply to them, it, you know, it applies to my mountain bikes and things like that. And I just like great engineering and things that have like like that thing on the wall behind me, you know, it's, it's made for a purpose, there's no fat on it, there's no compromise, it's just a sort of ruthlessly focused racing bike designed to go fast you know and um yeah i i guess i have that approach to like the, the way i think as well to a lesser extent you know I, i'm usually really into things or i'm not interested at all does it ever or did it ever frustrate you if you know you've got this high performance mindset and if someone comes in and it's like yeah, I'll give it a go, or, you know, uh, and then not as interested in getting that high performance. Yeah. And, they're, you know, they're, they're just rare to get round kind of thing. Yeah, massively. And um, massively, mate. I'm, I think I've got a, I might be wrong, but I think I've got a reputation for being like quite an easygoing person and, um, you know, kind of like friendly, sort of unchallenging person to, to have been around British cycling. But, um, yeah, in, internally, I was always pushing, like pushing for the best helmets, the best skin suits. I couldn't, I couldn't, and I still can't get my head around the fact that, um, you know, we we didn't want to win all the time. You know, we were only happy to sort of like turn it on once every four years. And it was like a knife in my soul. Honestly, every time I had to turn up for a world championship or a world cup or a Europeans with the sort of like, you know, yeah, let's sort of, turn up and get some points approach or, you know, we're going to wear a certain garment or choose a certain bike or helmet because that's going to appease our sponsors. 
you know, to, I, I get it. Like, and you know, in your old age, you, you become a little bit more aware that there's there's more to life than um, than winning. You know, there's a, there's a big picture to think about, um, and there's a business to run. But you know, selfishly as an athlete, yeah, I just wanted to win. Yeah, of course, and and it was kind of shocking to to hear that there was sometimes that mindset because you know, I I think. It was certainly one of the World Cups in Manchester, my my club, um, who actually Rod Ellingworth's a life member of, um, just as a side note. Um, but like we went and did a track day in, in Manchester and then hung around to watch the, the World Cup. It's either that or like yeah. me and a mate had come up to watch the World Cup. And we'd heard like anecdotally like that the GB team at the time, I think it was you, Andy Tennant, Steve Burke era. I want to yeah. say, um, and, and like the anecdote was that you guys were glad when you could ride world record pace because that was easy compared to your training. Like that was the yeah. story going around at the time. And, and so it's shocking, firstly, to hear that you kind of went, that sometimes you were told, oh yeah, we're just turning up here for the, for the points. Um, and it, was there any truth to that? Were you training at sort of sub world record pace and therefore going having to do a world record was just oh uh, you know that that's a slightly easier day no 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 i, I think there was uh, rumors were um potentially taken out of context a bit we definitely the training was always harder than racing but that's exactly how it should be you know there's the whole train hard race easy idea you know if you're training hard enough training's hard hard work you know and um the, the life compromise you've got to make around that is even more difficult um yeah I, I, you know, we always raced flat out you know no matter like what race it was the riders you know we'd rather die trying than finish second um you know we always had that attitude but it, there's more to it than just turning up on the day and doing you know four minutes of brilliance there's a whole, um, as you know, it's, it's a massive, great team operation. And uh, like I said prior, you know, it can't be this way. We don't have the money. Uh, we have to hold back intellectual property, uh, marginal gains programs, all of that. Um, if we're going to give the engineers time to develop it, you know, and drop it off a few months before the Olympics, then we've got to upset that we're not going to make any progress for, for three and a half years, you know? And, and if we're funded on one event every four years, it's very hard to argue with that theory. And, um, you know, looking at the results, it's even more difficult to argue that it, you know, wasn't correct because it worked every time. Um, I, I, I personally think that we, we could or should have made a bit more of an effort in the sort of interim years um because in my opinion success breeds success yeah and also if you liken it to a game of chess half the game is putting yourself in a position for the kill at the end and the other half of the game is taking your opponents apart mm. now it, whilst it might not have mattered to us if we turned up and got fourth at a world cup or a world championships you know, that's an Italian team that's just got the first bronze medal. Or that's a Danish team that's just got the first gold medal. And for them, that meant funding. That meant progress. And, um, you know, ultimately, 
I do think this is only my opinion. Yeah, of course. I do think that we kind of we're being guilty of leaving the door wide open and then sort of being a little bit taken by surprise when people put their foot in it. Yeah. And you know, th- th- there's very there's very sort of persuasive counter arguments to that. Um, you know, the results being one of them that would suggest that, you know, we're not doing things badly. Um, you know, we're still the most successful team at the Olympics. Um, I just think it'd be great if we could do both. Yeah. But then I'm greedy, so <laughs> maybe that's my problem. Yeah, and that's interesting, actually, because certainly, um, like, in track, it seems potentially easier to have that, like, constant success. Whereas on the road, like, no matter who the rider is, you know, Eddie Merckx even, like, he would have spent more races losing than he did winning. Like, it's literally impossible. Whereas on track, it kind of isn't as impossible. Like, you might lose one or two, but there is that constant success that you can get because partly because of predictability. Yeah. Do you think that perhaps played a part in your kind of mindset towards why you felt more, maybe more comfortable or like maybe more fulfilled by doing more track than road? Um, yeah, potentially, yeah. But yeah, I mean, what, what you said again is correct. Like, you know, on the track... <clears throat> If if you if you sort of went about it in the right way, you could definitely win um, more often than not if you were the yeah. best team. Obviously, not every time, you know. There's um, there's always going to be ups and downs, and you know, humans are biological things, and they're going to have good days and good uh, bad days, and good months and bad months. Um, even when you're taking all the appropriate boxes in terms of training, nutrition, sleeping, all of that. You know, there's always going to be sort of like ups and downs that will sort of defy physics. But if you're looking sort of like, again, this is a long time ago, but I've run into Beijing in team pursuiting. I don't think we lost a race for the 18 months prior to it. And um, it almost felt like we sort of broke the competition before we even got there, if that makes sense. And in London, to a lesser extent, you know, we didn't win a lot for a couple of years, but the last year, well, within the last year, in 2012, we went to Melbourne, so, you know, over to, like, our major rival sort of home turf, and, you know, we won the World Championships there mm-hmm. um, for the first time in that cycle, I believe, you know, in their back backyard, and really... A lot of us would argue that that's where we won the 2012 Olympics, you know, six months prior on the other side of the world. And um, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with that. Um, so I, I, I do think there's a certain... Um, like I said, you know, it's an, it's an interesting... There's definitely reasons why you want to target events and hold back budget and so on and so forth. But... Um, Again, I, I'm always a bit of a believer. There's a bit of a happy medium to be made as well. And I haven't really answered your question there at all, have I? But um, in terms of the predictability of it, yeah, I, I do think I enjoyed the, the predictability of track events and that. But um, 
And don't get me wrong, I, I love the carnage of the crits and the road races too. Like, I love the fact that it's a little bit all up in the air. And um, But I, I, also being a bit of a statistician, I always try to put reason and numbers behind things, you know? Yeah. So there's this idea that races are somewhat of a lottery, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like anything I, can happen. Yeah, and it, and it can, but there's definitely sort of like statistic, statistics and probability within that anything can happen. Hmm. And, um, you know, I was watching the Formula One qualifying just before we got on the line here. And, you know, there's Daniel Ricciardo's having a tough time and he's qualified, what is it, 15th, 16th or whatever. It's, it's highly unlikely he's going to win, but he could in theory, you know. Point I'm getting at is, yeah, anything can happen in a race and anyone can win. But I knew in a crit that if I went into the last lap in seventh or eighth place and I moved up into this corner and I was in third or fourth and I came out the last corner, you know, in second or third wheel, statistically that would put me in a higher sort of probability to win than anybody else in the bunch. Now, being able to do that wasn't easy, but... Do you know what I mean? So you can try and manipulate the numbers within yeah, that anything that, can happen. It's kind of the, the playing the percentage game. You knew yeah. that if you got it into the last lap. Likewise, you said with mountain bikes, um, with the World, uh, World Championships happening at the moment, yeah. I was watching the XCC. I want to say XCC. Short track. Um, yeah. And I was like, I was watching and as soon as I saw that Sam Gaze was near the front, on that last lap, I was like, well, he's going to win probably because that's his style, similar to your style for grits, where you're like, if I'm in last lap here, I've got the best chance of winning from this position. Because Is this the one where there's a bit of a car- there was a bit of carnage, there was a little crash just like 200 metres to go. Yeah, Blevins went for yeah, it. Yeah, that's and, right. And Blevins was- went around the outside, didn't he? And then they, they sort of like, I don't know if they had a tangle, but Blevins went down, didn't he, on the last little rock? Yeah, there. yeah, it's that rock guard that he came off uh, not straight, basically, and just face planted yeah. into a massive rock. And but it was that kind of he'd rather die trying than come second, like you were saying about <laughs> Good yourselves him, yeah. as well. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And both are admirable, but it's that playing the percentages mindset of yeah. Sam Gaze knew if he was in the bunch on that last lap, he's probably going to win because that's how how he races. Uh, it's something yeah. I've seen several times. Um, in the, in the World Cups as well. Yeah, yeah, defo. And Ble- from, from Blevin's point of view, I, I, I like what he did there, to be fair, yeah. because in my head, he's like, he probably knew going around the outside in that rock garden wasn't going to work out. But <laughs> even if it was a 5% chance, I bet, you know, if you just said, look, there's a 1 in 20 chance that this is going to get you the win, he'd take it every time, you know, rather than finishing a safe second. So, yeah, yeah, I, I guess, you know... It, it still made sense, you know, even after the crash. So good on him, like, and I, I guess you've got to think like that sometimes as well. How, well, I guess as a follow-up to that, like what mindset do you try and instill in the people you coach and work with? Um, do you go, mm-hmm. let's play the percentages here? Like clearly the, uh, I can't remember its whole name and I apologise for all your, the mm-hmm. co-sponsors, but the Pro Noctis Red Chili team, Oh, yeah, um, yeah. in the tour series of 
that do remarkably well. They get several top places and do well on the team rankings. I think they won this year, but don't quote me on that. Um, yeah. I know they performed well at New York GP, which is actually where I bumped into you. Uh, very glad I did. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they smashed the Tour Series, didn't they? And yeah. I, I, they, they were either one or they were a very close second in the National Crit Series. Um, and for a relatively small team, yeah, they did a great job. As much as I'd love to take the credit for that, I really think Phil Kelly deserves all that. You know, he's the main sponsor from Pro Noctis and he's, um, you know, spends his time mentoring, uh, you know, not just the girls, but Rick as well. And, you know, they've got a great little team there. Um, in terms of like how I'd coach people, I, th- I th- honestly think Ben Greenwood ta- taught me this. You know, to be a good coach, just about asking good questions you know usually people have all they've got all the answers themselves you know and people know yeah good coaching it's an interesting one and it's not just about a, a coach barking at people to motivate them hitting them with a stick or you know offering like a carrot as a reward you know there's, there's a big sort of holistic picture behind it and um, every person you're coaching is going to have a different idea of what a good coach is. And I think that's really important to remember. Mm. You know, there's no coaching style that's going to suit everyone. So I think the best thing you can do as a coach is have your ears open and not just listen to what they're saying, but like really listen and go away and reflect on it and ask sensible questions. You know, that'll help them sort of tease out their answers um, of their own bank of knowledge, if that makes sense. Do you think that was a style that worked particularly well with you? Because I've, I've noticed every single answer you've given has been incredibly thoughtful, incredibly, like, just, yeah, just balanced and kind of... Uh, mm. I don't want to say long because that sounds negative, but you know what yeah. I mean? Like there's a lot of <laughs> uh, of consideration behind Boring. it. Boring, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's think. One of my best, I really like Matt Parker. Matt Parker was one of my very first coaches, you know, took us through to Beijing. And he he was a thoughtful fellow. He'd go away and he'd think about things. And if you asked him a question that he didn't know or if I was sort of probing as to like, you know, why are we doing this block of zone free? Why are we doing that? He'd always go away and be like, Leave it with me, Ed. And he'd sort of come back and he'd, be, he'd sort of give you like a bit of this and a bit of that. And speaking earlier about a willingness to learn, he always had that. There was no ego about that man. You know, if I sort of like asked him a question, why are we doing this, Matt? You wouldn't take that as a hit to him, you know, his coaching ability. He'd go away and sort of like be like, right, yeah, I don't need to explain this sort of thing. Mm. And um, that, that was good. Um, all my coaches have been great. And then we had like Matt. So we had like uh, Dan Hunt, sorry, you know, up to 2012. And he had some sort of like a military background and you could sort of like see it in him. And he had a bit of banter in him and he was a bit sort of livelier. Uh, and I like that. I, I value sort of humour and, you know, banter within a coach. And he's probably a bit sort of stricter and sort of like handing out orders and things like that. But but not loads. And he loved winning. Like... um I like that about him. Like, he really got excited when we won. Um, so, see, Dan was a good coach as well. Heiko, uh, that we had in um, 
the late Heiko Salzvedel, bless him, who we had in 2016. You know, he came, came in relatively late and sort of saved the day in a way. Um, his coaching style was very much sort of um, adult child, if you like, you know. That's the sort of textbook answer. He was the boss and he dealt out instructions to the children. That was me and Brad and Berkey and Owain. And, you know, to be fair, at that point in time, after my back surgery and everything, whilst it wasn't necessarily the textbook approach, he had a tried and tested method that did work. Um, at that point in time, it's, it's, it was exactly what I needed. So, you know, I, I think, you know, most sort of textbook answers would say, you know, that it's got to be like adult on adult conversation. It's not somebody dishing out orders and there's not somebody sort of like playing a submissive role. It's like sensible conversations between two sensible people. Um, but yeah, like what Heiko did was perfect for the time. And, uh, and again, you know, I've been very lucky, you know, to have great coaches all the way through. And Ian Dyer, the last coach I had through at Tokyo, you know, he's arguably the best out of the lot. You know, he, he was quite thoughtful and very methodical. He was very much a sort of a scientist, you know, and he was, he was quite, um, <laughs> what, what was great about Ian was you could sort of go to him and say, oh, my house has burnt down or I've just won the lottery and you get the same <laughs> response out of him. Yeah. You know, he's like on the same level and, I really that sort of level headedness was pretty good, you know, in the heat of competition. So um yeah, hopefully I've tried to pick up, you know, some of the traits out of all of them. And um, you know, if I ever do get a full time coaching role, uh, I'll tr I'll try and apply those. Yeah, it's kind of strange that just to sort of tie this all together that you started out as just a lad looking to, you know, have some fun on two wheels, essentially. And by chance, you got picked up and ended up in the talent team. Although some would argue, like, your talent would show through regardless, um, you know. But then you said you always seem to have the right coach at the right time. Maybe not for others, but for you, certainly, with what you said about Heiko. Yeah. And now it's all gone back full circle again and you're back to being that that lad who has fun on two wheels no matter what yeah i think that is just a remarkable story and all the little sort of ways it's gone throughout it still ended up back at the start yeah 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 I, i've always like longed that's been the hardest thing to be honest it's like i've always valued having fun and, you know, having a laugh. And the the one thing that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand is being regimented and disciplined and, you know, and having fun. And whilst it can be done, it's not an easy thing to do. And at this point in time, um, I've obviously got things that I'm committed to, that I'm keen to work on, uh, things that I'm really excited about and things I'm really enjoying. But the best thing about my life right now um is that I can treat bikes purely as fun again. And I absolutely love them. Yeah. And, you know, no matter what level of the sport you're in, like, in my oh, heart, yeah. you know, we do it because it's fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cycling's a hard sport. You can't do it if you don't enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I couldn't care less these days about what my threshold is or (laughs) (laughs) FTP and all that and peak power. I couldn't care less. And um, it feels really liberating (laughs) just to get out and like, I don't have a training peaks account or power cranks or heart rate monitors, none of that. And um, I'm I'm not saying that's a bad thing, you know, it's it's really rewarding for people to sort of track the progress and get ready for races and prepare. And I I can definitely see how people enjoy that now. Uh, But for me right now, I just want to get out and kick about. And, you know, today I went for two and a half hours on my gravel bike. Nice weather. Didn't bother taking a water bottle because it doesn't matter. Get back (laughs) from the bike in the garage. There's nothing to download, analyze. And it feels great. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, fun on two wheels is what we're about. So we're, yeah. we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much. All right, cheers, Pete. Thanks, mate. After Edith and I had actually stopped the official recording, we continued to chat. He's a, a great guy. And there's a little bit that came up afterwards that I think is fully worthy of inclusion within the main body of this podcast. So... Here it is, a little coda for you, um, for those who have stuck the distance. It's a mighty episode, it's over an hour, so well done if you've made it this far, and your prize is more of me, but more importantly, more of Ed. Genuinely, thank you. Um, I When I saw you at Newark, I was like, I was freaking out. Um, <laughs> uh, cheers, mate, I'm glad I've still got a fan out there. <laughs> Good I, I, it was just like, I don't know if you know, I was loitering for like 15 minutes and then I was like, because you were right at the edge of a VIP section and I obviously couldn't go in. I was just like, oh, afraid he gets close enough and you were always chatting to someone. So I was like, oh, uh, I can't yeah. really. And then, yeah, I was busy that night. I tell you, there's loads of people I was talking to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still, then, it still feels weird going to bike race and not racing though. Does like, it? Really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but to I, be honest, like we touched on it earlier, like bike racing doesn't look the same to me these days. You know, like, we're not there with the big JLT buses and all that, and the one yeah. pro buses, and it's, yeah, it's just the whole thing feels a bit strange. But yeah, yeah, because like in the end, I was like, ah, oh, I, I won't get my chance. So I just went and found like the yeah, someone in man. the in the girls' peloton. I've chatted to a couple of times on here, and I was like, oh, I'll actually see someone I've interviewed. And then when I came back. I was already buoyed from having done that, and uh, you were free. I was like, "Great, I'm going." Like, made a beeline and just went. Yeah, through good it. man. What's that um, saying? F- fortune favors the brave, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And then, like after that, I actually had to leave the the sort of town square um, and sort of hide around Claire's because again, I was freaking out. I couldn't believe I got to chat to you, and I still can't believe <laughs> I'm getting to tell you this now. Oh um, uh, yeah, well. Speaking about values, mate, in my head, everyone's the same. Yeah. You can put it in the podcast if you want, mate. I just think, like, you know, to think about, like, what you really value, mate, you've got to think about, you've got to ask yourself, like, a a decent question, haven't you? And for Phil Kelly, he asks himself, when he's making decisions, he's like, is this something my mum would be proud of? And he uses that as a bit of, like, a guiding light. And for me, I just, I think about, uh, this is nothing that I've made up. It's a common thing. Like, what would you say on your deathbed to somebody you loved? So if I had a great grandchild, they were like, great granddad Ed, what should I do with my life? 
I just tell them to like enjoy themselves, not care what people think. Uh, try and treat people um, with respect, you know, if they're nice fellas. And I, I tell them a life's a life. Do you know what I mean? Like loads of people will have like amazing talents, and there'll be loads of people that have you know random talents. And to be honest, there'll be loads of people that aren't what humans would rate as like particularly brilliant at anything, but fundamentally i think everyone's got the same intrinsic value and a life's a life and i always took that attitude at the bike race as well you know if you're sat on the start line it didn't matter if i was lining up next to a a 10-time olympic champion you know in my head they were they were no better than me but the same applied vice versa as well you know i was no better than anybody else and i I'd very much tried my best to not look down my nose at anyone um at any point in time and i still try to do that now You've been listening to QuickLink Podcast, your daily microdose of pro cycling news and results. You can find us across social media at QuickLinkPod, or you can contact us by emailing show at quicklinksports.com. Share the show, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. Bye now.